Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay. Why did the turtle cross the road? Why? To get to the Shell Station. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. And from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you everything you need to win your next dinner party. You just got a joke from Uzo Aduba. She's up for her second Emmy Award for her role as Crazy Eyes in the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. Yes. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with artist and filmmaker Doug Aiken about his cross-country train journey slash art happening entitled Station to Station. Also coming up, indie music legends Yola Tango share a dinner party playlist. Emily Post's great-great-grandchildren tell you how to use your iPhone. And we go to Denmark to answer the ancient question, is an open-faced sandwich really a sandwich? Spoiler alert, no. No. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Wildfires burning across the American West. The historic thousand-point drop of the Dow this morning. And now a look at the uneven recovery in New Orleans, coming up 10 years since Hurricane Katrina. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with PJ Vogt, the host of Reply All, a podcast about the Internet. PJ, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? The story I'm going to be talking about this weekend is the new robot that is supposedly better at Tinder than you. Wow. Right. Tinder, for those who don't know, the, the online dating application lets you select a mate. What? It's a robot that chooses for you? Is that a good idea? Uh, no, it's, it's a terrible idea, which is why it's so fascinating. It's not like a software robot. It's an actual robot. It's a camera with two robot fingers, and it looks <laughs> at your cell phone for you. It analyzes photos according to your preferences. It can be like, this is a dark-haired lady. And then the fingers will select yes or no so that you don't have to use Tinder. Your robot can do it. So now not only do you not go out to meet people, but you don't even have to actually swipe the app in your home. What does that leave you time to do? Maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> First of all, is this an actual practical robot? Well, I think it's art. It's it's by this guy, Sarab Dada, and he, he calls it conditional lover. And I think he's trying to make us all sort of stroke our chins about the fact that machines are doing our matchmaking for us. Like, I don't think this mm-hmm. is going to come to market. I see. Mm. But like the thing I found so fascinating about it is the online dating apps as they exist are already crazy good at this. Like if you use OkCupid for a while, within like a month, they are showing you people who look robotically identical. Like they've figured out your preferences (laughs) in a way that makes you feel like not a human. But what about the people who fall in love with the robot that's swiping? (laughs) You know, I feel bad for them. Wait till they find out it's an art project. Uh, PJ, thanks so much for the small talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and then enlist a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our cask strength history lesson with booze. And we'll start with the history. It's kind of a perfect one for the back to school season. Around this time back in 1927, the Georgia Institute of Technology enrolled its most famous student. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Yes, and it all begins with the tale of Georgia Tech's second most famous student. His name was William Edgar Smith, Ed for short, who, as an incoming freshman, was accidentally mailed two student enrollment forms. Instead of throwing the extra one away, he decided to use it to create a fictional student. Ed named his creation George P. Burdell, and he signed up the non-existent George for the same class as Ed took. 
every time there was an assignment, Ed did it twice. Once for himself and once for George, with the language and handwriting slightly changed so professors wouldn't catch on. Ed even enlisted fellow students to shout out, here, when George's name was mentioned during roll call. Thusly, Ed and his pals managed to convince the faculty George was a real person for years, culminating one glorious day in 1930 when Georgia Tech bestowed upon him a Bachelor of Science degree. When Ed revealed his prank to the shocked administration, it immediately became an undying campus legend. Students still try to enroll George P. Burdell for classes. In fact, on several occasions, they've hacked Tech's computers and signed him up for every class the school offered. And each year, the student body celebrates George's birthday on April 1st. His legend extends beyond campus, though. In World War II, George was listed as a crew member on a B-17 bomber. For 12 years, Mad Magazine listed him as a member of their board of directors. And in 2001, when Time Magazine polled readers about who should be Person of the Year, George P. Burdell led the pack, until editors took him out of the running. That was the history lesson, and now, as is our want, we are going to create a cocktail out of that story. We reached out to Molly Gunn. She is a bartender at the Porter Beer Bar in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of Georgia Tech and presumably George Burdell. Molly, welcome. Thank you so much. You heard the story. What drink did it inspire you to make? Well, we have a fabulous brewery here in town owned by two Tech alums, and uh, the brewery is called Second Self. What Whoa! <laughs> Wait, is it called Second Self because yeah, of this? Yeah, the brewery uh, is called Second Self. Isn't that amazing? Oh my good! Maybe everyone who kind of goes there is predisposed towards having a split personality. Yes, exactly. So okay. I used a beer that they make called uh, Thai Wheat. Real light summary, and uh, we right. used a locally made vodka. It's called Thirteenth Colony. Put two ounces of that in the beer. So. All right, that turns it into a cocktail because until then it was just a beer. <laughs> until then so. it was just a beer, exactly. And then right. Georgia, you usually think of Georgia peaches, but to go hand in hand with the twist of the mysterious split personality, Georgia actually grows the most blueberries in the U.S. Wow, I had no idea. We grow way more blueberries than peaches. I know, everyone thinks of us as the peach capital. Everyone can be forgiven because your license plate has a peach on it, right? Or it says <laughs> exactly. the peach state. And, and yes, us southern girls are often called Georgia peaches. Georgia so. blueberries. Yeah, it doesn't have the same <laughs> ring. No, it does not have the same ring. So we made a blueberry syrup with some of those lovely locally grown blueberries. And yeah, that's your cocktail. Is there a garnish for this drink? Just a few fresh blueberries on a toothpick. That way you know what you're drinking. And it looks like a, like a little mouse dumbbell there. <laughs> exactly. So Molly, do you have any imaginary friends? I, I know you didn't attend tech, but... You know, I, ha- I have enough real friends and problems without fake friends and problems. Okay. And I can't believe that they did that guy's homework. That's a really good imaginary friend if you do his homework, too. Let's just hope that he didn't pay... Burdell's student loans as well. Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> Enrico, since we're on the subject, okay. I guess we might as well reveal that All Things Considered's Robert Siegel mm. is also a fictional character created by Audie Cornish. Yeah, she also does his voice, a lot of people don't know. And also yeah. the voice of, quote, Terry Gross. That's right. <laughs> NPR's really just Audie Cornish and a bunch of engineers. <laughs> Everyone. The truth can now be told. Uh, folks, our cocktail recipes are real, however, and you can find them all at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
so we've made small talk, had a drink, now this party needs music. And for that, we turn to Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley, two-thirds of acclaimed indie rock band Yola Tango. Mm. For 30 years, they've recorded everything from acoustic ballads to noise pop, and that diversity is evident on their latest album of cover songs called Stuff Like That There. Here they are to DJ your dinner party. Hi, I'm Georgia. This is Ira. Hi there. We have a new record called Stuff Like That There. By our band Yola Tango. <laughs> and this is our dinner party soundtrack. Since there's an excellent chance that we'll be serving jambalaya at our uh, dinner party, I thought we'll pick a song from New Orleans. 10-4, Calling All Cars by Benny Spellman. by uh, Alan Toussaint under his pseudonym Naomi Neville. I think I first encountered that pseudonym with the Rolling Stones, Time is on My Side. Always wondered who Neville was. I went to the dance last Saturday night. I'll probably put that record on while I'm cooking. Ira makes a mean jambalaya. My brother gave me Paul Perdome's cookbook at some point prior to 1993. So I've been making jambalaya a long time. And we have spent a lot of time in New Orleans. It's definitely one of my top five favorite cities in the country. I'm sure anyone who walks in will need a beer because the room will still be a little uh, redolent of cayenne pepper being cooked. So the next song would be uh, a Gene Clark cover, Miriam's So You Say You Lost Your Baby. She's a great singer and drummer from the A-Bones and runs Norton Records with her husband, Billy Miller. Well, you're smoldering with flywoods, catch the moment on the run, and you say there's nothing easy. In the Avons, she's kind of more of a howler and a screamer. Pretty raw, garagey, and here it's very melodic. So you say you lost your baby. Do you know that you're the one? You know, it's funny when we record cover songs and play cover songs we're frequently asked, are we doing it to promote the song or expose the song? And the answer is not really, that's not our motivation. But playing records around the house when people come over, that might be part of the motivation for playing the Miriam record. It's like, have you heard this? You, you really should hear this record. You would like it, I'm sure. The first time I ever heard Thelonious Monk was through NRBQ. And a song that NRBQ did all the time, but only recorded recently, was Baya. I mean, that was years before I heard Monk's version. So for the next song, I'll pick NRBQ's version of Thelonious Monk's song Baya from their We Travel the Spaceways record. It occurs to me that I may have to explain to some listeners who NRBQ is, which pains me very much. NRBQ stands for New Rhythm Blues Quartet. They've been playing together for almost 40 years now. (music) 
one of the most amazing things I ever saw them do. They had puppets made of themselves, and the puppets sang a duet of Mellow Yellow. They're <laughs> pretty remarkable. For our last song, we will play Before We Stop to Think from our new record. Before We Stop to Think is by Great Plains from Columbus, Ohio, but our version's pretty different than theirs. When we need people to go home, we just put on our own records. There were black pugs hanging around the sink Before we stop to think Not the ones that need a drink Before we stop to think And we stop to catch our breath And we stopped fearing our death That's when we died A dinner party playlist from Yola Tango. Their new album is called Stuff Like That There. Lovely. All right, folks, coming up, we talk to Uzo Aduba, a.k.a. Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black, and with artist Doug Aitken when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, you'll hear an edible audio postcard from my recent trip to Denmark, and author Matthew Salisis talks about feeling displaced by both water and race. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Uzo Aduba. For years, she was known mainly as a Broadway actress. She starred in the revival of the musical Godspell a few years back. But these days, she is known for her deeply sympathetic portrayal of Suzanne, a.k.a. Crazy Eyes, on the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. The role earned Uzo an Emmy last year, and she's up for another next month. Crazy Eyes is an inmate at a woman's prison, and she is funny, imaginative, and also clearly mentally disturbed. When I met with Uzo, I asked if she had diagnosed her character. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, she says she's not crazy. She's unique. Um, specifically, I think it's emotional expression that is where she's been stunted developmentally. And we see that when we see her backstory that she's... She's, she's adopted by a white family. Absolutely. Actually. She's been adopted by a white family and has always felt other. And as far as her imagination is concerned, she's always been other as She's well. Overly imaginative. Overly imaginative. Or has imagination of a different sort, as I like <laughs> to think of it. You know, I think it provokes a conversation about how, if you have never been a part of the fold or felt like you belonged, how that might directly impact how you grow. Well, actually, we have a clip here that I think illustrates this very well. There's a character in the prison named V who has actually made Susanna Crazy Eyes feel like she is part of the fold for maybe the first time in her life. And she is so enthralled to V that she actually allows V to convince her that she attacked a fellow inmate when, in fact, it was V who did it. And this is a scene where she's talking about this with her prison counselor. Did you attack Red? V said I did. Those men who were here said I did. Shouldn't I believe them? No. You should know what you did. I can't remember. I thought I was mopping in the warehouse. Turns out I was slocking in the greenhouse. I must, you know, I must, must have mixed up wear and green or, 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 or mop and slock. That could happen. Right? It's very unlikely. Yes. But who can I trust? Yourself. <laughs> I 
<laughs> no. <laughs> I'm unreliable. She is an outrageous character. And when you talk about the way she expresses herself, she's very pretty over the top almost all the time. <laughs> but this character exists in a world that's pretty gritty and realistic, this mm -hmm. prison world. Sure. So I imagine that there are challenges in trying to portray an over-the-top character in a way that doesn't become cartoonish. Well, I think that starts with our show's creator, Jinji Cohen, and her team of writers who have done a very elegant job keeping her rooted in something. So then... For me, the actor, I can understand her pursuits, and her pursuits are love-based. She's yeah. always in the pursuit of love, and they always have that inside the body of who she is. For me, I just try to keep her grounded in that absolute truth. You know, if, she, if there are moments where she needs to be broader or bigger, starting from the place of this truth where she's, she... She's doing it because she wants She love. has absolute reason and justice. She has justified every single step of what she's doing. Speaking of writers and your relationship with them as an actor, usually on a TV show, you don't know what your character's going to do until the script arrives that day and you do the first reading of it. Yeah. What's the moment that you were like, oh my God, Crazy Eyes is going to do that? <laughs> do you remember? I mean, I have a, I have a couple of <laughs> those moments. Um, I think... The first was when I first met her parents, when I opened the script and learned who her parents were and what her background was. This upscale white family. Was exactly. And these academics, it was incredibly informative to me. Oh, this is where the Shakespeare comes from. This is where this, Yeah, she, you know, she can recite Shakespeare. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this twist with language comes from. She has these very, you know, settled academics. But you didn't know that? They didn't give you that backstory when you came in? Had you painted a backstory for yourself and then found out it was totally different then? Um, I had ideas in terms of who she was. I did not have that story. <laughs> I'll be honest. I did not know that those were her parents. Did it change the way that you portrayed her thereafter? Absolutely. Well, it, it just added a different color because now you realize there is a host of reasons why this person might be pursuing love so desperately. She is adopted. She has a sibling who might be biological to those people or may also not be. And what is that dynamic like? Mm -hmm. How old was she when she was adopted? How long has she been without parents? Mm -hmm. oh, you know, there's so many tears that it changed for then the rest of season one just from that one flicker. There's a huge fan culture around the show. You have a very popular but also very, as you said, unique character. <laughs> I can imagine that you might, you might have a story or two about fan interactions. I mean, I, I was just saying the other day, I had a, I had a, when I ran the marathon, it's probably the funniest um, interaction or unique what was, interaction. What happened? I was running the New York City Marathon. Oh. And we're on mile 17. So you know we're not like mile two, three. We're a mile, we've been going more than halfway done. And so you're exhausted. We're coming into the city. And then all of a sudden, this man from my right side comes running up beside me, and I hear him, and he's like, I know you, and I ain't going to bother you, but I am going to take a selfie. And I, before I could even say anything, Rico, like the pic camera was in front of me, the picture was happening, he's cheesing, I look like I'm about to pass out, you know, <laughs> I was like, my You're eyes are closed, really my tongue glamorous. is out, yeah, I'm looking fabulous. And then before I know it, he's gone. He was just gone. This was another competitor, by this, the way? Yes, he was out there. I was like, have a good race. <laughs> See you at the finish line. Um, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Sure. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? 
Oh, would you throw your pie for me? <laughs> for those who don't know, this is a, a that's a line from season one when uh, Piper, the object of Crazy Eyes' affection, is in a fight with her own girlfriend. Yes, in season and, uh, one, I throw my pie at her, and she says, "I'm not your prison wife," and I say, "I threw my pie for you." And people ask me if I'll throw my pie for them. So I guess at a dinner party, my answer would probably be no because I would want to eat it. So <laughs> I would <laughs> let Uzo keep her pie. Yeah. I'm 100% behind your decision. Uh, the second question is more of an order, really. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. Okay. Something that our, some of our audience might not know. Kedu Enibo means hello and how are you? What language is that? That's Igbo. I'm Nigerian. My oh, family's wow. from Nigeria. And our names, how about this? I'll give you another one. Our names are sentences. Like my name yeah. is Uzoamaka, and it means the road is good. So if you were to come to my house and I was like, Kemaka Uzo, how was the trip here? You would say, Uzoamaka, the road is good. Uzo Aduba, she's up for an Emmy for her work on Orange is the New Black. And Brendan, speaking of good roads, mm-hmm. specifically yellow brick ones, mm-hmm. in December, Uzo is going to play Glenda the Good Witch in NBC's live production of The Wiz. All right. That's From true. Prison yeah. to Munchkinland. I know. Is- Although I was thinking that Oz is actually the name of another TV show set in prison. Well, see, she was typecast after all. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> the world continues to go round. <laughs> to eavesdrop. Houston writer Matthew Salisis has published essays in fiction in Salon, The Rumpus, and the esteemed journal Glimmer Train. His new novel comes out this week. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Matthew Salisis. My book is called The Hundred Year Flood. It's about a Korean-American adoptee named T who goes to Prague and gets in an affair with Kaka, the wife of a famous artist. I am a Korean adoptee myself, and started the book when I lived in Prague for a year. And so it was this major flood that wiped through a lot of Europe, actually, but especially in Prague in 2002. I started out trying to write about the confusion and loneliness I felt as an Asian American expat in Prague. And it took me a while to figure out that the book was really even more about adoption than I thought it was. I'm going to read from a chapter called Ghosts. In September 2002, after his father flew him back from Prague for good, T would stand at the window in Massachusetts General Hospital and stare out at the river for hours. At night, he dreamed of flood water. For an instant, he caught a woman's silhouette behind the frosted glass that separated him from the hall. Then, on the floor, a pair of boots glowed. When he picked up the boots, water poured out of them. The door was locked. He couldn't reach the woman, though she couldn't have gone far. The room felt smaller, was closing in. He hadn't noticed how small it was before. He would wake, screaming his own name, as if he stood outside with the woman and couldn't save himself, as if the water was inside him. Even after he woke, a ghostly calf curved around his door again and again. In August, in Prague, 
The flood would seem a surprise, though storms came and went for weeks beforehand. The city surrendered its boundaries. Sections of sidewalk buckled like tiny tectonic plates. Trees tipped over in the oversaturated soil and had to be tethered like barges. Metro lines were shut down too late to protect them. The river washed parts of Prague into other parts of Prague, then into the rest of Europe. From where T watched, in his second-floor apartment, the flood made a high brown sea just below his window. He wondered how he had let himself miss the signs. How strange the way we wade into disaster, step after step, not realizing how far we've gone until we're drowning. Just before the flood, Katka had asked about Korea as the raindrops formed fat planets against the windowpane. Her finger followed the streaks across the glass. T said, A Korean friend told me once about his visits as a kid. Everyone looked like him, but he still didn't belong. Katka touched her temple where her skin met her hair. No one your age, she said, feels like he belongs. How did she really see him? His quick black eyes, the scar on his chin that toughened his boyishness, his flat cheeks and curved nose, the cream in his brown skin that seemed to make white people touch him without realizing. Katka smoothed her hair, and he said, You don't know what it's like to be adopted. People see you as who you were at birth. But you're not that person. At that point, the flood was still weeks off. T opened the window and caught rain in the cup of his palm. Kaka pulled his hand in, and for a moment, he thought for some reason that she would lower her lips to the water and drink. She splashed his face. He pulled back in anger, but her grin conquered him. Writer Matthew Salasis reading from his new novel, The Hundred Year Flood. That piece was edited for time, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, as you know, I was just in Copenhagen for holiday. I was very jealous. Watching your Instagram filled with pictures of bicycles and very attractive people. That's basically Denmark in a nutshell. I got it. But it's also known for its cuisine. There are now 13 Michelin-starred restaurants in Denmark, including Noma, widely considered the best in the world. Did you eat there? My second mortgage didn't come through. Oh, But I did sorry. eat smorbrod, <laughs> the Danish national lunch dish, which is much more affordable. Okay. They're open-faced sandwiches, which some places take to new heights. To learn about them, I spoke with Emil Björg, chef at Ol & Brod, a mm. place that does updates on this classic dish. And first, I asked for a pronunciation lesson. Uh, yeah, open-faced sandwich is uh, smorbrod. Smorbrod. Smorbrod, yeah. Is that what it means, literally? Yeah, I think if you translate it directly, it's a... Uh, Smell in English, that's butter. If you smell, you like put something on the bread. It's like the spread. Yeah, yeah, spread on the bread or butter on the bread. Uh, spread bread. Yeah, spread bread. <laughs> I think, I think uh, Smarbro is a better name. It sounds a little classier. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do you know why this became the uh, national lunch food item? I think it was in the 50s, 60s. Uh, normally when 
the people who went to work, they made a lunchbox at home. Uh, and that was the smell with the rye bread and something on top. Pretty simple. They used to put these in a lunchbox. How do you transport that? It's topless. Oh. How does everything not fall out? A lot of butter to keep it. <laughs> oh, interesting. So um, what are the classic toppings? Like, what's the classic uh, Smarbro? Normally when you eat Smarbro, or when you're having dinner with the family or something, you always start with the herring. Uh, pickled herring, with, normally it's just with onions, cabers, caber, uh, sometimes like a curry, a creamy curry uh, cream. That's the classic thing to start with. Uh, and then normally you have maybe some kind of uh, smoked mackerel, some kind of fish, like meatballs, a fish, uh, what's it called? Fish cakes, like fish ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have some different kinds of meat with the, also onions and stuff. So is small bro, it's a food item, but is it also the name of like a meal? Is, or like do you meet for small bro? Is it like tea in England? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, if you ask somebody, do you want to go out and eat small bro? It is. You go out for lunch uh, and then maybe sit for one, two, two and a half hours and you just take it easy, have a beer and have a snap snack of it. Normally you start off with a herring and then boom, 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 boom. How many are you allowed to eat before people think you're being a hog? At the restaurant, we normally recommend two or three pieces. But I'm a big guy and Johan is a big guy, so we could probably eat four pieces. I mean, there's no law how many you can eat, but uh, you always two or more. All right, so here at your restaurant, uh, for your lunch menu, you do small bro. What are some of the sandwiches you serve here? We pretty much just look at the classics. Herring with the onions. We do it with fennel and we do um, smoked mackerel with the... Um, normally we have with radish and mayonnaise and scra- scrambled eggs. But normally when you have a scrambled eggs, we, my mom, when she made it, it was really uh, overcooked. <laughs> but we do it with just totally smooth and then with sour cream. So it's like almost like a porridge. It's not like really firm. Like a creamy consistency. Yeah, really creamy. Is rye bread the default base for a small bread? Yeah, normally it is. Uh, sometimes you have, if you have shrimps, you normally have it on white bread. But otherwise it's rye bread. That's the normal thing. Do you eat them with a fork and knife or with your hands? Fork and knife. Always? I mean, not just at your restaurant. That's usually the way. Yeah, usually the way. Usually, yeah. Always eat it with a fork and knife. Unless you're in a hurry and you just do like a rye bread with something at home. Then it's just by hand. Uh, if you expand to America, this might be a problem because we, are, we only are given 10 minutes for lunch and we need to eat on the go. Fork and knife is, might be too complicated for us. Yeah, probably, I think. There's not going to be a mixed more bro any, anytime soon, I don't think. Nah, I don't think so. All right, so here we have a s'more bro. This is exquisite. What are, what are we looking at? Uh, this is the herring, pickled herring, dill, onions, pepper. Uh, and then on top, we have some dill mayonnaise. We have some pickled fennel, some raw fennel raw apples, some onions, and tarragon. So it's really yeah, light, fresh start uh, for the lunch. All right, so I'm going to take a bite. This is going to be hard because I have to hold a microphone and use a fork and knife. So I'm going to put this down for a second. All right, so I'm going to taste this here. What do you say in Denmark before you eat? Do you say bon appetit? Or? Uh, Vilbekomme. Vilbekomme. Yeah. Mm, delicious. It's a sweet crispness on top of the uh, saline, rich herring. Mm, this is excellent. Do you think it's technically a sandwich? Because I feel like we almost have a... Uh, it's more like bruschetta. I don't know if it even qualifies as a sandwich. I don't see it as a sandwich. Somebody says sandwich to me, I think like a normal sandwich. Uh, I think smabble is just smabble. Because in America, we like to like eat while we're driving our trucks and it'd be really hard to steer while eating an open-faced sandwich. Yeah, you couldn't do that. I think it would be a risk to yourself and others. Emil Björg, chef at Ole & Brod, a new restaurant in Copenhagen, Denmark, 
They just participated in a smorgabrod festival in Copenhagen this past weekend. Does this count, by the way, as a smorgabrod? That is half a peanut butter cracker. I don't think It's that. minimalist. <laughs> Whatever. People, up next, artist Doug Aitken tells us what happens when you take the most creative people in the world and put them all on a train. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, acclaimed visual artist and filmmaker Doug Aitken talks about his project Station to Station, in which he brought art to America by train. We wanted to design the journey so it touched not only on these large cities, but, you know, all these spots in between, which the rails might get you to, but the freeway might not. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are the global ambassadors of politeness and propriety, Lizzie Post and Daniel post Senning. They are the great-great-grandkids. You could have a bigger yay, Rico. We're excited. Yay! <laughs> yay! <laughs> All right. They're the great-great-grandkids of Matters Maven, Emily Post, and from the Vermont lair known as the Post Institute. They co-authored Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition. They also co-host the podcast Awesome Etiquette, Lizzie, Dan, I, for one, am excited you're here. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Gentlemen. I like that we're global ambassadors with a lair. Yeah, like we it. were talking about this the other day. You know, when you're in trouble in a foreign country, you're supposed to contact an American embassy, right? Totally. So is the Post Institute a manners embassy? How does it work there? Can I just show up and have you guys solve an etiquette crisis right there on the doorstep? <laughs> Seek etiquette asylum? <laughs> no, you, you definitely cannot. Why not? It's actually one of those strange things that Dan and I do have to deal with, which is where's the cutoff point to access? You know, yeah. Brendan, where is that? Cut-off oh, point? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just I curious. think I crossed the boundary, Rico. <laughs> I don't know if I told you this. I made an emergency phone call to Lizzie. What was the question that you had for her that needed immediate adjudication? Uh, I couldn't attend a wedding last minute, and uh, mm-hmm. I had to send a note to the groom to my friend, and I didn't know how to word it. And then I was like, Lizzie, Lizzie, I, I have access to one of the most powerful etiquette people in the entire world. <laughs> okay, but put wait. the brain trust on this one. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Credit where credit was due. You did consult a friend first. That's and right, your friend was actually right. It was our marketplace colleague, Noel King. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, she was like, you're you're explaining in too much detail. Because I yep. basically was like, I can't go to the wedding. And I explained why. And she's like, you don't need to tell him why. Just tell him you can't go and you apologize. Bingo. Ooh. All right. So next time we're going to have Noel King on to answer etiquette questions. Yeah, That's she right. totally gets it. Just talked yourself out of a job, Lizzie. <laughs> Listen, we actually have a, our first question here is a wedding question. So why don't we ask Sweet. this to you? This question comes from the bride-to-be, Miss Wendy Darling. Dear Posts, my wedding invitations are giving me feminist heartburn. Our RSVP cards will be addressed to my parents as Mr. and Mrs. James Darling. Mm. Given that women have their own identities, shouldn't they get their own names on the cards? The problem is your website still lists only the Mr. and Mrs. James Darling format, and Mm. it's really hard to argue against the Post Institute. Can't this be updated to reflect the century we live in? Gosh, Mm. personal attack. And etiquette Dear question. Wendy, <laughs> I encourage you to buy our 18th edition of Emily Post's Etiquette because it does have the updated forms of address. Well, we um, encourage you to update your website then. We do. We need Lizzie. to update our website. But this is a question that we get all the time, and it's an answer we've given many, many, many times, and that is that you always find out what the preference of the person whose name you're going to be using is. So hmm. you, Wendy, as you are getting ready to do these invitations, need to call these people, get in touch with them, email, find out, do they prefer using 
their husband's name, which some women do. And uh, I, being someone who talks to a lot of people about this, is 50-50 split. There you are. That's your answer. Well, nice job, Wendy. You just got a whole bunch more work for yourself right before your wedding. <laughs> That's it's right. true. That'll teach you. It's a hard answer, but it's the right one. All right. Yep. There you go, Miss Wendy Darling. And here's something from Katie in Kittery, Maine. I like that name of that town and Katie that's a nice name too when should you complain writes Katie to a manager at a restaurant and when should you let it roll off your back I worked in a restaurant for many years and sometimes when I have awful service I don't say a thing my thinking is I'm sure he she had a bad night and it wasn't her fault but sometimes I know it's their fault and I still chicken out when is the right time to say can I see the manager, please? This is a, a proportionality of response kind of question here. I say it really mm. depends on your ability to deliver that piece of information well. Um, if you can uh, do it in a way that's not going to cause conflict every time you do it, if you're, as a former server, able to offer that legitimate and honest feedback to somebody who it's appropriate to offer it to, there, there's no reason not to. But definitely when you bring up uh, things that have gone wrong, be prepared for that not to be received so well. So you, you might decide to moderate that reaction. Dan's first sentence was, was it proportional? Okay, so they were a little late with your drink. You don't need to be up in arms about it. And all the way to the end of where you would be uncomfortable leaving a tip of 15 to 20 percent, then you have to talk to management. Yeah. So that's the other end of that scale. On the one end is the do nothing, bite your tongue. On the other end is, you know, I'm not even comfortable tipping for this service, but that means that you need to be having that discussion. I was thinking that what Katie could do, if you wake up the next day and it still upset you, then you send a note. Brilliant. Feedback cards, comment reply cards. You know, one thought, though, before you take to any of the services that allow you to rate, you know, public places and and their customer service, Mm -hmm. first try calling the restaurant or the bar. No. Go straight to Yelp and rant. (laughs) Whip up a few of your friends. Nothing makes you look cooler than writing a whiny, (laughs) ill-considered Yelp review. All right. There you go, Katie and Kittery. We gave you, I think, five options. So (laughs) choose whichever one. And if you don't like our advice, we don't want to hear about it. Yeah, please. There's no Yelp for public radio. Yeah, there's no Yelp for us. Uh, our, (laughs) Our next question comes from Sarah. She writes from Iowa City, Iowa. If you're going to a baby shower for twins, do you spend twice as much as you normally would? Mm. I think your budget is your budget. And so, <laughs> poor twins and triplets, man. We had some triplets that worked on the same floor as our building. They were like, we're always splitting stuff. It's not fair. <laughs> I they think... said, did they say that all at once? I just imagine them saying that like a chorus. <laughs> oh. It's right? fair. In, in a rhythm. <laughs> um, your budget always dictates what you're able to spend. The fact of the matter is, is that these babies are going to have their parties at the same time for all the different things you're going to celebrate with oh, them. That oh, no. might mean that you can't spend as much on them at once. That being said, said they are two separate babies don't make them split one onesie buy, yeah buy a twosie here is something from one of our favorite listeners his name is Ziggis from Brooklyn and Ziggis writes this is a good one can you set the record straight on group text etiquette oh good question I think at some point everyone's been roped into a group text we don't want to be a part of says Ziggis <laughs> and there wasn't much we could do about it so please lay out the do's and don'ts of group texting so at least we can point to this show and say dude not cool see It's tricky. It's true. Backing out of a conversation like that, I'd look for who started it. Oh, dude, you know what I look for? What? Go Well, okay, I have an iPhone. You go to the do not disturb or leave this group text. You can shut off the notifications from this group text message. You can do it in in your settings or I think from the message itself, there's an option somewhere up there. For real. Savvy tech answer from Lizzie Post. But but, But that's the tech answer. 
what, what's the etiquette part of it? Well, uh, you could go back another step to try to nip it in the bud, stop the whole thing before it begins. Whoever it is that's initiating these texts and roping you in, talk to them offline and ask them not to do that. Sometimes they're useful, though. Yeah, you can't say that's... from now on, never include me in a group yeah. text. You might want to be in a group but text. But you might say, you know, these texts that come each week or this particular group that, that oh, yeah, is happening regular. regularly, I'd rather not be a part of it. It's like removing yourself from an email list. You talk to the organizer and ask that yeah, they not include you. Get the, you. Yeah, usually you get the buy-in to be a part of something like that. But if it's just your group of friends that does it, which I'm as, as imagining what Zygis is dealing with. What makes it a little trickier because yeah. it's hard in the middle of that conversation to say, you know, I'm just not interested. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. But yeah. that is, I have seen that happen, though. I think it's okay to say, hey, guys, I'm hopping off this group text. Hit me up when you come up with a decision. I'm looking right now at a group text that I'm part of, and I do not see this mechanism. Right. <laughs> Hold <gonna> on. <laughs> I'm grabbing the purse. Hold we're gonna on. Post, we're going to We're going to post out. a how-to link on our website. How about we so say that? Screenshot of the settings screen. I know, right? All right. Well, you know what? That's a good time to moot this conversation. Lizzie and Dan, thank you for teaching Rico about the smartphone and telling our audience how to behave. Oh, so much fun, guys. You're most welcome. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandchildren of Manners Maven Emily Post and authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. That's a lot of ease. They also have an awesome podcast called Awesome Etiquette, which can be found wherever you podcast podcasts. And folks, if you have a behavior question that you want answered by the posts or by whichever celebrity we managed to sucker into the job, put your fingers yeah. on your keyboard, type an email, and send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest Doug Aiken is a major star of the contemporary art scene. His multimedia pieces have been shown around the world at the Whitney Biennial, MoMA, and more. But his latest work is a movie, Station to Station. It documents his project of the same name, wherein he commandeered an intercontinental train and traveled on it across America, inviting dozens of artists and musicians aboard to make art and stage 10, quote, happenings for audiences along the way. We're talking everyone from little-known indie bands to stars like Patti Smith, Thurston Moore, Jackson Brown, and Mavis Staples, plus artists like William Eggleston and Ed Ruscha. The film rolls into theaters over the next few weeks, and Doug, it's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you very much. What was the germ of this project? What's the trigger for, oh yeah, an art train? Well, I was really attracted to the idea of displacement, making things outside of your safety zone or outside of the neighborhood or city that you live in. Mm -hmm. And as I researched it more, I kind of looked at the train system in North America, and I realized there's these kind of arteries that just run through the landscape. And, you know, so much of it is, is largely unused. These stations are... You know, they're often WPA-era old marble halls or spaces in disuse. And, you know, could you activate those almost like one-night museums and create some kind of happenings with them? You use the term happenings, which is a word that connotes kind of 60s Warhol or hippie drug freakouts of the 60s. Why use that word? Do you feel a connection maybe to road experiments of that era like Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters? Well, I've always seen the term happening as just meaning something which is time-based and volatile and often a convergence of different mediums. So there is no 60s connotation in that to you at all? Uh, <laughs> you can do whatever you want there, but... Um, <laughs> this is up to me. There, it's up to you. I will say that it actually reminded me of this movie, uh, Festival Express, which is about the uh, the Grateful Dead taking a tour of Canada by train in the 1970s. I've seen it a while ago, yeah. Yeah, just getting a bunch of freaks on a moving conveyance and seeing what happens. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's very different about this project was it's not a tour, 
Um, we didn't have a group of people that toured across the country. The train was actually made for production. There is a recording studio on it, a film studio, editing. Someone yeah. might use the train from point A to point B, like Giorgio Moroder, to record sounds that he'd then mix into a soundscape where someone else like Patti Smith says, I've written this one song and I will not play it in New York or Los Angeles. I will only play it in St. Paul. So you know. <laughs> I need a train for that. I guess so. Did you find something unifying in the work that was ultimately done? Like, could you see the effect of motion on all of it? Yeah, I think that sense of, of change and coming into a space which is completely unfamiliar is liberating in a lot of ways. And it also is destabilizing. So it kind of hmm. makes one think, you know, I don't have the tools I'm used to. And can I create with what's around me? I, I noticed a lot of the music actually did seem to have this kind of relentless chugging feeling. At one point, you even overlap Thurston Moore's music with the chugging of the train in the film. Thurston's actually a, a very interesting example. There was a, a stretch from you know New York to Pittsburgh where Thurston was on the train with some other musicians, members of the Boredoms and Ariel Pink. Oh my and, God, um, that sounds insane. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. being trapped. For those who don't know, the Boredoms are one of the most off-the-hook Japanese punk noise bands that's ever existed. And I can't imagine being trapped with them on a train. It must have been crazy. It, well, it, it was quite amazing sonically. And, and Yoshimi, who's one of the drummers, yeah. she was kind of improvising and you know working with the sounds around her. And then she kind of stopped everyone and said why are we trying to make some kind of music or song? Why don't we just hear the rhythm around us, the vibration, the screeching of the steel, the oh, velocity, wow. and all the percussionists started playing to the sound around them on this moving object that they were performing in. And, you know, when you see a kind of soundscape coming out of something like that that's so intuitive and in the moment, you know, there's something, like, shocking and refreshing about it. Strangest thing you saw go down on this train over 24 days? Oh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but, um, you know, there was a lot, a lot of people getting on and getting off. And, um, you know, a, a lot of change, constant change. And, you know, come on. Um, you can't dish just I, I a little bit. It doesn't have to be, I don't know, sorted. <laughs> just maybe unlikely. I don't know. I do remember a moment, a moment that I just really liked. It was in Barstow. When we um, staged the happening in Barstow, there was this amazing outdoor drive in movie theater. Yeah. And it's, kind of semi-derelict and it looks out into the Mojave Desert surrounded by these hills these desert hills and mountains and um, it was dusk and I looked up into the hills and there was just all these strange headlights and lights coming out of the hills and I looked I squinted more closely and I saw that there's just this kind of huge constellation of dune buggies, these kind of strange Mad Max-like dune buggies <laughs> with, you know, people up there who probably just pull up every time there's a drive-in theater because they don't want to pay. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and they're just kind of looking into this kind of strange event with different mediums happening and different artworks. And, you know, I think maybe Lucky Dragons was playing at that moment. You know, I just kind of felt this, this connection with landscape and the individual and community, and it, it really kind of summed up um, what we were after with this project. That actually does bring to mind some of the places shown in the film. They are pretty remote. They're not known as being cultural epicenters. Yeah, I mean, 
We wanted to design the journey so it touched not only on these large cities, metropolises of Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, but, you know, all these spots in between, which the rails might get you to, but the freeway might not. You know, Winslow, Arizona was a fantastic example of that. There was a really amazing outpouring from the local reservations. Native American reservation. Exactly. And it was really interesting seeing people kind of coming in and, you know, moving through this work. One encounter really struck me, which was uh, we were sharing this film by Officially in Vice, a Swiss art collective, The Way Things Go. And um, the film itself is a kind of domino effect where one thing after another after another happens. You have It's like a Rube Goldberg kind of device. It's like a Rube Goldberg. You have you know a candle lighting a string. The string snaps. It's attached to a wheel. A wheel rolls into a bucket. Of water pours over. And, uh, you know... I was watching this, and I was standing next to this man who um, I'd met earlier who was from the reservation. He just kind of leaned over to me and said, you know, I could make this whole thing. I have everything in this film. I have a tire, a candle, a string. I could just make something like this. And, you know, it was one of those interesting kind of crossover moments, which um, which really, uh, you know, kind of struck me. Your favorite piece that came out of the journey? Uh, <laughs> that's right. You're going to throw every other artist under the bus. Just pick one. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a tricky one. But I really don't have kind of one moment. You know, I think that that was one of the things that you know with this project that was so interesting was this dynamic range of of creators. You know, whether it's an artist like Ed Ruscha who decides he doesn't want to make a drawing or a painting for this project, he wants to make edible cactus omelets that are only served in the desert and there's 300 of them you know so you eat this bad tasting cactus omelet if he didn't do well he should stick to art <laughs> it was a, i mean it's one of the few um edible ruches that i'm aware of artist doug aiken his new film station to station rumbles into theaters across america over the next few weeks and next year, his multimedia work will be on display at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. And that's the Dinner Party download for today, everybody. Alas. Time to start looking forward to next week's show, which will feature etiquette advice from none other than rock legend Alice Cooper. That's right, a man for whom snakes are a fashion accessory. Till then, mm-hmm. please know Jackson Musker produces our show, Nina Patak is our associate producer, and Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer, Robbie Carmen engineered, Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And folks, the party does doesn't stop when our mouths stop moving. Heck no. Thank goodness. We live over on Instagram. Our address is DinnerPartyDNLD. And we're running a photo series called Win Your Summer, where basically some of our favorite culture figures, folks like funny man BJ Novak, author Emma Straub, and rapper Lizzo, have taken over the feed and they're posting pictures of their summer vacations. That's right. You'll especially want to check out the contributions from Opus Moreski, the head writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He may have hit upon the most innovative way to eat a watermelon we've ever witnessed. Our Instagram handle again is DinnerPartyDNLD. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Bon appetit.